All right, one more time. How we doing at the 9.30? We good? My name is Brian, lead pastor here. We are glad you are with us. And I've announced this the last two weeks, I think, uh, but I'll continue to do it over the next month. But the first of June, first Sunday in June, we begin a brand new environment that is for every single CCR who attends here. And it's going to run during the 11 a.m. service. And it's our main environment as we launch it in June to help people connect here with our growing gathering and um, really help them personally and growing in their faith. And so this environment's four weeks long. It runs every month, pretty much all year long. Um, right now during the 11, eventually we may expand that. Um, but there is information at Connect Point. So what I would love for you to do and this is everybody, this is all skate, go grab one of those little cards out there and uh, just get some information about this. If you've been here for two weeks, this is a great place for you to plug in. If you've been here for six years, this is a great place for you to plug in. Even if you feel like you know all this already, bring somebody with you because our gathering is continuing to grow and we don't want to be a, just a church that has people come and sit in rows. We want to help people connect, help people grow. So go check out that information. Uh, just last week, to jump off what Adrian said, in just one of our services, this is not total, just one service. We had over 100 kids um, in those. So if you feel um, the Spirit of God leading in your heart, um, and I'll be as manipulative as I can right now, um, you should go back there and check out that sign up. And um, it, it, seriously, though, if you feel pull in that direction, because we, we're really, we, we want to let the right people in that environment, um, so you may get turned down. But we would love for you to investigate it um, because our kids matter and God's doing incredible work. So, all right, with that said, you guys ready to? dive into part two of Does God Make Sense? All right. Um, last week we started this, and what I would say is this is one of the series where I kind of do it as a four-hour message, but nobody wants to hear a four-hour message, so I break it into five parts. And so this very much is kind of like a movie. That, there's almost two weeks of introduction. It's very different, and so usually I like to camp out in one text or one scripture. I'm not doing that in this series, so just chill. If you've been, you know, if you're new, go listen to the podcast. I swear I use the Bible a lot, um, but this is a very different series because it's kind of a, an apologetic series. I've a very narrow focus. Um, I'm quoting atheists a lot in the course of these messages, so you just need to hang with me and trust me, um, but it's been incredible to see what God's done already. The, the thing I'm most encouraged about is even after last weekend, hearing so many adult parents talk about their kids across country or in college right now, and they're listening to these podcasts, and one of the things we wanted to do this series for was not even just people in the room, but the thousands of podcasters we have in about 35 countries, because this is such a big subject and a big, big question, and so what we're doing is we're just answering this. Does God make sense? And the thing is, this is relevant to you even if your answer to this question is yes, because all of us have grappled with doubts or questions at some point along the way, or we've been in relationship with somebody who's grappled with doubt and grappled with questions. And, and here's what um, I would say in kind of the context for this series is just the increasing number of people specifically who kind of grew up in a Christian environment and then at some point along the way, walked away. That's really kind of what my focus is on this series. And as I said last week, in a lot of the cases, if I can be brutally honest, it's the church's fault. Now, here's what I would say, is there are some things about Christianity that I think we could all admit are kind of unsettling. There's certain things that it's just tough to grab a hold of. But then on the other side of it, if we can be honest, I also think the idea of a godless universe also has some very unsettling conclusions. 
And so consequently, there's a lot of people who are kind of stuck in the middle, where you walked away at some point because there were kind of these just nagging, overwhelming doubts about theism, but then you, you have trouble going all the way to the other side to really consider a godless universe because at some level that can kind of lead to despair. Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, brilliant writing, super honest. Solomon was the guy who could basically pursue everything that we'll, we'll never get a chance to pursue just to see if if it'll satisfy. Basically what Solomon does is, is goes, okay, I, I want to see if, if there's no God in the picture. If I just get enough women and enough money and Tinder app it up on steroids and go Home Depot weekend warrior times a million and build one of the seven wonders of the world, is that going to be enough to satisfy? And here's Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes 1-2. Meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Like Solomon, I just want to give you a hug. I mean, is it really that bad? Everything is, I mean, we you know some things are meaningless. Cats, we don't know why they're here, but every, everything is meaningless. I'm just kidding, if you love cats. And then, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and then verse three, he says this, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Meaning, if it's, just come back if you're a cat lover. I swear the rest of this, this may be for you. If it's just chemistry, biology, and the laws of physics, it's under the sun, there's nothing. And so some of us find ourselves in this in-between of, I don't know if I can grasp theism anymore, at least what I was presented, but I mean, I really have trouble on the other side really considering a godless universe. And so you've walked away, but you're kind of stuck in the middle. Now, here's one of the things that maybe in a weird way is kind of encouraging to you is that people have been walking away from God from the very beginning. You go all the way back to the first century and they're the most sophisticated culture in the world worshipped the sun. And then they kind of walked away from that. And then the most sophisticated culture in the world worshipped Zeus. And then Rome came along later as the world power and they worshipped Jupiter. And now nobody worships those gods anymore, basically. Nobody worships the sun. Nobody worships Jupiter. Nobody worships Zeus. Actually, Richard Dawkins says in The Devil's Chaplain, I love this quote, he said, we're all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one god further. And here's the thing about the first century that's interesting is that, that they would worship these gods and they would kind of abandon them. And the Christians, specifically in the first century, they were actually called atheists. Like if they had a Roman neighbor, the Roman neighbor would kind of come over and, you know, chat it up one day and be like, hey, so what, what temple do you go to? And like, well, we don't really have a temple with what we believe because it's not housed within four walls. It's a personal relationship. Okay, well, where's your priest? Uh, we don't really need a priest either because now we have direct access to Jesus. It's like we can call God Heavenly Father. Okay, well, where's your sacrifices? Mm, it's going to sound weird. We don't have sacrifices either because like Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin, so we don't really need to do that anymore. And so literally the Romans would look at their Jewish neighbors and be like, oh, so you guys are atheists. No, we're not. We actually believe God. But here was the message of the Christians in the first century. You guys have the wrong God. Like I know this seems crazy and it seems very irreligious and unreligious, but but I'm telling you, all the pantheon of gods that you've run after, you actually have missed it. You actually have the wrong version of God. And that's one of the tensions today. And this is going to sound a little crazy, but give me grace to say it, is that maybe what you walked away from was the wrong version of God. Maybe that was never God to begin with. 
Maybe it was never what it was intended to be. And here's one of the things that I think brings that to the surface is I've been able to have lots of conversations with Christians specifically who've walked away from Christianity over these few years. I've never once heard a story, and I'm sure they're out there, I just haven't heard it. I've never once heard a story about somebody's deconversion, if I can use that term, deconversion from Christianity that actually had anything to do with Christianity. And every time I have those conversations, I want to ask, and sometimes I do if there's a relationship, and I just want to go, who gave you that picture of God? Who said that's what God was like? Where where did you get that somewhere along the way? And so here's part of kind of my angst and, and maybe my question for this series, whether you're in the room or whether you're podcasting us, is maybe you walked away from the wrong version of God. Now, here's the thing. There's several different types of kind of, again, to use this term, deconversion stories. Usually it goes something like this. You grew up in a religious environment, whatever that looked like. You had a a childhood conversion at some point along the way where you said, I believe that. And then for some of us, one version is you go off to an irreligious environment, whether that's a cross country for a job, whether that's to college somewhere, and you get in this irreligious environment and you find that you really, really like it a lot. And so all of a sudden, your behavior starts to change, but your belief hasn't changed with it, and you start to ask some very, very hard questions about your childhood faith. And what happens in many cases is you receive just-have-faith answers to very fact-based questions. And one day along the way, because it never happens in a moment, you don't get up and do this, but it just kind of dawns on you, I don't know if I believe this anymore. I don't know if I can grab a hold of this anymore. And faith is such a weird thing. I'm going to talk about later in this series where you, you either have it or you don't. You can't really manufacture it. And, and Christianity was never meant to be just faith in faith. It's so much more than that. And so at some point, it just kind of dawned on you, I don't know if I believe this anymore. And just have faith is not working for me. Another scenario of deconversion is you grew up in a religious environment, you um, embraced or had a childhood conversion somewhere along the way, and then there was a faith-crushing event that caused you to just walk away. But before you walked away, again, you started asking some really, really hard questions, and you received a lot of just-have-faith answers to very fact-based questions and some very emotionally stirring questions. And at some point along the way, the reality of what you were experiencing and how God had been presented was just too much, and you walked away from it all. And then some of us, it's kind of a hybrid story where you grew up in a a religious environment, you had a childhood conversion, and it wasn't a faith-crushing event, and it wasn't necessarily that you went off somewhere. You just started asking really, really difficult questions, and nobody could answer any of your questions. And again, you just walked away from it. And right now, you're not really sure maybe what you believe, and you haven't gone all the way over here. You're kind of in the middle, but there's just angst on every side of it. And so here's what I know. Regardless of your story, almost every deconversion story, or if you've got a 29-year-old who's off somewhere, and you're kind of trying to figure out, how do I have a conversation? There's almost always one thing in common in every deconversion story. And the one thing in common is what I would call a somebody said God. Somebody said God, a pastor, a friend, uh, a co-worker, somebody you grew up with, it came from a Sunday school class, it was a parent, but almost every deconversion story has a somebody said God attached to it, where you were presented with this idea and picture of God at a very young age. 
Uh, a lady by the name of Karen Armstrong, um, she puts this the best in a book that she wrote. Karen Armstrong was a nun, like a literal like training to be a nun. And then she moved into the nun category, if you were here last week. As in N-O-N-E, I'm not really sure what I believe. I'm not hostile toward religion, but I'm not sure if I really believe this over here. And so she's got some kind of mystical idea of, of religion or God. She could explain it if she was here. But she said this in her book, Um, the case for God. She said, many of us have been left stranded, I love that word, with an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God about the same time as we were told about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of the Santa Claus phenomenon evolved and matured, our theology remained somewhat infantile. Not surprisingly, when we attained intellectual maturity, many of us rejected the God that we had inherited and denied that he even existed. That's spot on. And so here's the thing. In some ways, that's all of our experiences because all of us, or a lot of us, I should say, were given some kind of childhood version of God. We had something handed off to us. And so that childhood version of God is what tends to stay with us, how he was presented at a very, very young age. And almost every deconversion story has that in common. So here's what I want to do for the next couple minutes. If you will roll with me, and this is going to be very different, but I just need your attention. I want to roll through six things. And here's what I want to do. I want to look at specifically the gods that we grew up with, a lot of us. I want to look at the gods that, I'm going to be real clear, do not exist, and you should abandon I want to look at, in some cases, the God that you walked away from that you should have walked away from. The God that doesn't exist, but here's what's key, that does not mean that there is not a God who does not exist. And so I want to go through six things real quick. Six gods of our childhood are kind of the picture or version of God that we were presented with. And some of us, this is the God we're still clinging to. This is the God you did or are walking away from, or your adult student walked away from, or your 29-year-old daughter walked away from. But it's a God that does not exist. And so number one, here's the first God, hedge of protection God. Now, I said this last night, and nobody got it, so I realized I did not really hit my target audience, so this is maybe, but if you grew up in the church, actually, let me ask, how many ever heard this being prayed at some point along the way? Help me. Okay, all right, so not bad. I think there was like one at the Saturday night service, but maybe that's why they're coming to the Saturday night service. I don't know. Um, I'm kidding. Hedge of protection God is, like, this is the God that always takes care of you and doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Now, this is not what it's implied in the prayer, but this is just kind of what I thought of, that this idea that God always takes care of you and he doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Now, this is the weirdest prayer request ever. This is where Christianity gets just, I don't know where this came from. If I want God to protect me, I'd rather have an army, not shrubbery, but whatever. This, somehow this became a thing of praying for God's hedge of protection. So, Here's the thing. This is kind of what was presented to you, and then at some point along the way, some really bad things happened to really good people, and it took the legs out from under your faith. A really good friend of mine, his name is John. He grew up in a Greek Orthodox environment. His dad was actually a Greek Orthodox priest. And he would characterize himself as probably agnostic, I think. And we would have conversations over and over again. And he would ask a ton of questions. And we would sit down over lunch. And I would try to answer some of those questions. And even when I would answer some of his questions, his objections satisfactorily, he would still have this, this just emotional pull because he watched his dad, who was a Greek, Greek Orthodox priest, get diagnosed with a disease and suffer for several years. 
And the thing that he just could not reconcile is how could a good God allow that to a man who was so faithful and so good? And no matter how many of the questions we talked about and answered, the thing that constantly caused him to walk away was this idea that God wouldn't allow bad things to happen to really good people. And that's incredibly emotional. This is where a lot of people are, really smart people who've walked away because of needless pain and needless suffering. Now, here's the one thing I'd say, and I got to go quick, and my goal is not to convince you of anything again this week. So hang with me throughout the five weeks. I just want to present a few things. But here's the thing about a whole, a whole needless suffering and pain. That requires unbelievable amounts of blind faith on your part. Because to say needless suffering and pain is basically to say this, that you are placing all of your faith in your own cognitive reasoning because you can't find a reason for a circumstance or reason for a suffering or reason for an event. Basically what you're saying is there is not a reason in the universe. And if there is not, if there is a God, a God couldn't have a reason beyond my intellectual capacity. That is unbelievable faith in your cognitive reasoning ability. But it's a huge issue. That, that this whole idea that really is left over from childhood version of God, because here's the thing, nobody has ever made this case right here, that a good God would not allow bad things to happen to good people. So since bad things never happen to good people, there must be a good God. Nobody's ever made this case. But if you switch this around, the idea, the implication is that somebody said that, somebody told you that, or that somehow along the way God promised that. But this is an argument for or against God. This is simply what somebody said. Again, I don't want to convince you, but here's what you should consider, is that Christianity got started by a really horrible thing happening to a really good person. In fact, a person, Jesus, who we would argue actually lived a perfect life, only person in history to be able to do that. And it all got rolling because a very horrible thing happened to him. And before all of that went down, Jesus actually said this. This is crazy. John 16, John records it in this letter he wrote. He's, Jesus said, I've told you these things, this teaching, so that in me you may have peace because in this world, here's a promise, you're going to have trouble. That Jesus actually, a bunch of promises in the scripture, one of the promises are good, good people are going to have bad things happen to them. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be things that go off the rails in a sin-invested environment. And one day, take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm going to handle every wrong. I'm going to handle every injustice. I'm going to make things right. But until then, bad things are going to happen. And in fact, the worst thing imaginable is going to happen to me in a short amount of time when I get crucified on a cross. I mean, here's the thing. If this idea of good things or bad things couldn't happen to good people had existed in the first century, Christianity would have never made it beyond the first century. It would have never made it beyond the apostles who gave up their lives, most of them persecuted, for what they believed and what they saw. It would have never survived beyond Nero burning Christians at the stake. It never would have lasted beyond Christians being fed to lions in the Colosseum. It never would have moved beyond that. So the idea that a good God couldn't allow bad things to happen to good people, I don't know where you got that. I don't know where along the way that was handed off to you because nobody has ever built a case for or against God on that idea. But I get it because for some of you, this was the defining characteristic of God somewhere along the way growing up. This was the picture of God that you were handed off. But you just need to know, listen, if you've abandoned hedge of protection God, good. That God never existed to begin with. 
Second God that, uh, that we kind of grew up with, and some of you, it's kind of a hybrid, so you got a mix of several of these. Congratulations. But um, the second one is on-demand God. On-demand God is basically the God who responds to fair and selfless requests the way we would. This is the, and not crazy requests, just fair and selfless requests. Like, I would respond to those requests, so, so I would think that a God of the universe who's good would also respond to those requests. Not crazy stuff like, get me a job because my family is struggling. Like, intervene, heal, do something, uh, somehow restore this relationship or this marriage, somehow get my son a date. I'm not asking for crazy things. I'm just asking, just get him a date and then help him to get married and move out of my house. But that's a little more about me. I, so I just want just get him a date. On-demand God is the God who's going to respond to fair and selfless requests just like you would. But on-demand God doesn't exist. I don't know where you got on-demand God. So you should abandon and you should walk away. You should stop believing in that God because nowhere in Scripture do you find on-demand God. I mean, come on, who gave us the idea? And I get it because it's, it's our fault. It's people like me. It's, it, we did this. But who gave you the idea that God was always going to do what you'd expect God to do? Who gave you the idea that God would always respond the way that you think God should respond? Where did we get that from? And here's the thing, if I can just be honest, I am so glad this God doesn't exist. Because at 15 and 16 years old, I asked God to do some things for me that would have jacked up my life. I'd still be paying the price, right? Like, I'm so glad God doesn't work that way. And so on demand, God, if you walked away from him, congratulations. He never existed. Third one is this, the God of childhood, and I couldn't think of another name, emotive God. This is the highly emotional God, which in turn, this is the God where you always feel and you always sense his presence at all times. This is the, you went to camp as a middle schooler and high schooler, and there was that huge thing at the end of the week, and everybody was crying, and you threw your stick in the fire, and you have never felt more close to God than you did in that moment, right? Unbelievable. It was 2 a.m. at Starbucks in your 20s when you didn't have anything better to do, and you're talking about deep conversations, and it's just, you have never felt closer to God than you did in that moment. It's a song that comes on. It's just those emotional highs where I feel his presence, like he is so close. And so somewhere along the way, somebody gave us the idea, or somebody said that because God promised, I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you, that you would always feel and you would always sense the presence of God. And so now, because you're a little bit older and you're not feeling much of anything anymore, like you're trying to recapture, throw your stick in the fire moment, and you look at people sometimes who have their hands in worship and tears rolling down their face, you're like, I'm just not feeling. I think they're making it up. I just don't feel what they feel, right? And I'm making fun a little bit, but there's just this idea of since I don't feel or sense the presence of God, God must not be present. Who told you that? Who gave you that idea of God? Who handed that off to you somewhere along the way? Because that's a somebody said God. Like, here's just a side note. Do you know you're least aware of the things that are most constant? You're least aware of the things that are most constant. You've never sat in a room and turned to a friend to go, you know what? Temperature's kind of perfect in here. Right? You've never done it. Have you ever got up if you're a citizen of the United States and gone, I just feel like an American today. Do you feel like an American today? I just feel, have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever, if you have kids, have you ever woken up in the morning and go, man, I just feel dad today. I just feel like a dad. I, I've never done that one time. I get up and go, I feel like a vacation. I have three kids under five. 
And because I have three kids under five, they're basically the equivalent of little angry house guests. So when I go on vacation, I'm just taking little angry house guests on a road trip with me. There's never a vacation. There's only a vacation if somebody invents like a baby taser that you can take with you. That's the only way. All right. A, a baby taser, not anything more than that. So where did you get that idea of God? That you're constantly going to feel and you're constantly going to sense his presence. Here's what's crazy about this. This is why you should read the Bible. Is that all throughout the scripture you find the exact opposite. I love David. He's shockingly honest. More honest than most of us can ever be when he writes over and over again. Basically, here's the entire Psalms in the Old Testament, if you can find it. The entire Psalm summed up. God, where are you at? Where are you? Like literally people are trying to kill me. Where are you? In Psalm 13:1, this is David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day after day and you keep not showing up? I want a throw the stick in the fire moment. But there are none. You have John the Baptist in prison. Jesus says of him, the greatest man born of woman. John's in prison going, Jesus, are you really the guy? Because I'm in prison and I don't really know where you are. It's Jesus on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? Where did we get the idea that, that if God's present, we're always going to sense and feel his presence? So here's all I want you to know is that if you quit believing in emotive God, emotional God, I'm always going to feel and sense his presence. Great. That God never existed. You should have walked away from that God a long time ago. And then number four is guilt God. This is the one that is maybe the most devastating in some ways, and it's the one where you will run from the quickest the, the first time you have a chance, but it's the one where it's very hard to unwind yourself from, that this is the one, even if you stop believing, tends to follow you around. This is the God that if there is anything pleasurable or good, the answer is no. If it has anything to do with sex, it is no, 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 no. It is, I'm going to control by guilt and fear. This is the God who loves you but doesn't like you. This is the God who manipulates and controls on the basis of fear. Can I just put something to rest for a second? There's a, there's a difference, there's a, this dynamic between conviction and guilt in the scripture. Conviction is a loving God who has redeemed you and saved you and cared for your wrath on the cross saying to you, listen, you're off the rails, I have something better for you, will you follow me? That's conviction. Guilt in the scripture is actually something to be remedied. Guilt was taken care of at the cross. Guilt is something that needs to be and has been done away with. Guilt is what causes people to live 30 years of their life with low-grade anger. Guilt is what was taken care of a couple thousand years ago. It's Jesus who said, it is actually my kindness that leads people to change. And really, that's the only great motivator. Just side note, if you parent on the basis of fear and guilt, guess what? When your kid hits about 18, bye-bye, because there will come a day where they will not fear you anymore. And if your only motivation is fear, it has no 
power to motivate beyond the level of the law that was put down in your home. Guilt does not work. It's why in the scripture it is something to be remedied. And so if you have somehow found a way to walk away from this God, congratulations. I'm so happy for you because this is a God that needs to go away. And I don't know who gave you this picture of God. I don't know who gave you this idea of God. This God, as you look at the scriptures in the New Testament, this God doesn't exist. This God was done away with. And then number five, and this is a huge one, the anti-science God. Uh, Here's how I would say this. This is this dynamic that many of us are forced into where we feel like we have to choose between undeniable science and what you would characterize as unreliable religion. And so some point along the way, you were confronted in a college classroom or, or just some, at some point in your journey where you felt like you had to choose. And to be intellectually honest, you couldn't deny undeniable science and continue to hold on to theism. And so you were forced into this false dichotomy where it's either God or it's science. It's God or it's science. And so in order to be intellectually honest and because of all the questions that had risen to the surface for you, you thought, I just can't believe in that God any longer. And come on, if you had to be honest, in many cases, science informs our theology. In some cases, theology informs science, but in most cases, science informs our theology. It's something called common grace, that all scripture and all truth is God's truth. All truth in the universe originates from God. It's Richard Dawkins who said this in The God Delusion, and if I haven't made you nervous yet, I still have one more atheist I think I want to quote, so hang with me. One of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. I think that's true. And and here's what I would say for some of you, your Sunday school God probably can't be reconciled with science. I get it. You just need to know that God never existed to begin with. The idea that there is God or science is a false dichotomy. It doesn't exist. And one of my examples would be this, and this is where us as Christians, we're so hypocritical. If you have a kid that gets sick or they have some kind of thing they're dealing with and you just don't know what it is and you take them to go get seen about, where do you take them? Do you take them to the church or you take them to the doctor? You take them to the doctor. And you take them to the doctor and they draw blood and they get labs and they go through tests and they're trying to figure it out and they say, okay, we're going to call you in a couple of days. And then you go home. And what do you do when you go home? You may gather a bunch of people to pray and you should do that. And can God heal and miraculously restore? Absolutely. God does that all the time. But when you go home, you're praying, but you also have your cell phone in your hand, don't you? Waiting for the doctor to call. Everybody's praying, but you have your cell phone in your hand. And then when the doctor calls and says, hey, we've looked at all the labs, we've evaluated all the tests, and here's what we've concluded. God wants to teach you something. No, you're like, no, 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 no. I want a natural, like really? No. I I want a natural explanation and I want a natural solution, right? I want a natural explanation and I want a natural solution. I want you to tell me what it is and I want you to tell me how we can remedy it. Here's what's crazy. We are all about science when it comes to medicine and sickness and disease. We're all about it. We're all about leaning into it when it comes to those areas. And here's what I would tell you. When your theology, in many cases, conflicts with, your, with science, when your theology conflicts with science, in most cases, you have a theology problem. 
In most cases, there is something about your theology that is off. And you just need to hear me if you have a middle schooler or high schooler, and you can go re-listen to this if you're not sure what I'm saying right now in the moment. If you have a college student, you need to listen to me. We have done a terrible job with college students who are going off to universities because once upon a time, Christians believed that God created the universe. And every discovery was a discovery into how God did it. There is no conflict. There is no dichotomy between science and God. God is a God of all truth. And every discovery and advance is simply a window into the glory of God. It's simply a window into this is how it was done. This is how the God that we believe did it. And then this leads me to the last one. This is fill in the gap God. This is the God, this is so huge. This is the God that becomes the explanation for everything that's unexplainable. This is the God that, if, if we don't know the answer, that's, a, that's God. If we don't know the, that's a God thing. That is a, maybe, maybe it is. That's a, oh, we just can't understand it, so that's God. Okay, maybe that's God. But I, I'm telling you, here's what you need to know about filling the gap, God, where God becomes an explanation for everything that's unexplainable. Eventually, this will undermine your faith. Eventually, it is only a matter of time to where your faith will be undermined by fill in the gap, God. Because here's what the reality is, is that the lists of things that we can explain are getting larger and larger. And the list of what we can't explain is getting smaller and smaller. And that's a good thing. Like, don't you hope that eventually we could cure every disease? Are you satisfied with a particular disease to just go, let's not research that, let's not put science behind that. God just wants that here for some reason. Would you be satisfied with that? Again, we are all about science when it comes to illness, when it comes to sickness. And so here's what you need to know. If you left fill in the gap God because God was simply presented to you as if there's not an explanation, it's God. And then somewhere along the way, there was an explanation. And so somehow that undermined God, somehow that detracted from the evidence for God and you walked away. You just need to know this God does not exist. This God is a God that you should have walked away from. Because come on. Unexplainable today may be in many cases explainable tomorrow. And if your faith simply rests on God being the answer for everything that is unexplainable, again, and this is maybe your experience, this is the experience of your student, your faith eventually is going to be undermined along the way. Because unexplainable is not evidence for the existence of God. In fact, in many cases, unexplainable is evidence of our own ignorance. It was Sam Harris, last atheist I'm going to quote today, and I'm going to end with a couple verses. Sam Harris said that it is on the frontiers of our own thinking that new discoveries and new advances are made. And again, that's just truth. He's absolutely right. And when it comes to sickness and illness and disease, we are all for that. We are all all about that. Because come on, the explainable will never explain away God. And this is one of those weird fears that has permeated the church and has caused us to create these just weird straw man arguments that don't have to exist. But even if we could explain everything, and we never will, there will always be the mysteries of God. There will be things that we're not going to fully find out. But even if we could explain everything, this fear is, well, if we can explain everything, we'll be God. No, you won't. Trust me. 
No, no, this is something that we don't have to fear because even if you explained everything, you're not going to explain away God. Here's, here's my lame example, and this falls apart, so don't take it too far. But if your smartphone, if you don't know anything about them like me, if somebody were to sit down and explain to you all the ways that your smartphone was manufactured, all the products that were used, all the technology behind it, all of the intricacies of it, when they got done explaining and you understood every part of it, every detail... When they got finished, you wouldn't conclude that nobody made it. And in fact, it would cause you to appreciate it more because it, you just know it works right now. But if you got behind all the technology, it is amazing what has been manufactured. Here's the reality, that the explainable actually points to the glory of God. The more that we've been able to understand about the universe and the human body, it hasn't detracted from what God has done. It has heightened the wow factor of that is absolutely unbelievable. That God could do that, that God could manufacture that. And so here's all I want you to know. It is not the unexplainable that points to God. It is the explainable that ultimately points to God. Because come on, we believe that God created the universe. And we take seriously what Genesis said, and that's a whole other discussion. But we take seriously that God created the universe, that God created the heavens, that God created the earth. We take science seriously that says there was a singularity, which is the word they use in creation, and that God was behind all of that, that God was the manufacturer of all of that. And then in Genesis, it says that after this singularity of creation where God created everything, that God rested, meaning God finished creating and said, I'm not going to create anymore. And now on the other side of what God did, on the other side of that creation, we would have exactly what we would expect, an explainable, observable, stable universe because God created, then he rested, he stopped creating, and now we have something that he manufactured that is stable, it is observable, it is predictable, it is explainable, and we can look into it to see what God has done. Here's what you need to know, that once upon a time, the Christians actually launched the modern science movement. Because up into that point, there was a pantheon of God. It was Zeus, it was Jupiter. And there, there was no reason to study the universe because all of the universe and everything that happened simply was a byproduct of the whims of these out of control pantheon of gods. It was Christians that stood up to say, no, 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 you have the wrong gods. There is one God and he created the heavens and the earth. He stopped creating and now there is a predictable, stable, observable universe that can be explained. And so science was launched by by the Christians who believe that God created everything. It is the explainable that points to God, not the unexplainable. And so if you walked away from filling the gap, God, awesome. That God never existed. That is a somebody said God that you still may be holding on to or maybe you walked away from a long time ago. So here's my whole point. And, and I'm going to start to deal specifically with some of these things over the next um, three weeks. So you just have to hang with me. You're like, well, you, there's all this stuff you left out. I get 45 minutes, so chill, all right? I got to do what I can. But here's, here's what you need to know, is that none of these gods at the end of the day exist. There is no fill-in-the-gap God. There is no anti-science God. There is no guilt God. There is no hedge of protection God. There is no on-demand God. But here's what you also need to know, that none of these are an argument for or against the existence of God. In fact, all, of, all these are are simply unmet expectations. In some cases, 
They're just childhood explanations. In other cases, they are sometimes ill-informed and uneducated interpretations. And at least in the case of guilt, God, most of us would agree they're blatant manipulation. So here's my question for you. It's where did your view of the God that you're struggling to believe in originate? Where did your view of the God that you are struggling to believe in originate? Or maybe, let me ask it this way. Where did your view of the God that you have walked away from originate? Do you kind of feel like you were handed a picture of God and that God never really grew up? Do you kind of feel like that somewhere along the way that, that you just, you're just having struggles? trouble embracing it, and you kind of feel like you outgrew God, or you got to adult age, and the rigors, and the questions, and the pressures of adult life, your faith just didn't bear up under the weight of that? Where did your view of God that maybe you struggled to believe in ultimately originate? Where do babies come from? Where do babies come from? Depends on who's asking. If my five-year-old is asking, they get one answer. If a 15-year-old is asking, they get another answer. If you're a pre-med student in a lecture hall, you get another answer. Come on, you know this. We accommodate to the capacity of a child, and we never lie, but we simply accommodate. But somewhere along the way, mommy's tummy doesn't do the job anymore, right? And can I just be, and I mean this with as much humility as I can muster, because this is our fault, this is the church's fault, but some of you are still hanging on to a mommy's tummy God, and he doesn't exist. And so the bottom line is this, and this is what we're going to kind of try to dig into over the next couple of weeks, is that maybe, just maybe, maybe you walked away from, you're struggling to believe in, you abandoned a God who seriously does not exist. And we really do believe, and we, I, this is going to be clear as we go throughout this series, that Jesus really is who he says he is and really did come to planet Earth and really did live a life we could not live and really did die on a cross and then in history walked out of a grave alive. And what he is offering may be very different than what you have come across. What he is offering and inviting you into may be very different than what you were handed as a child. But hope and life and forgiveness and grace is found in him and him alone. And I love what Mark said, and i got to close with this. I love what Mark said when he's recording one of the gospel accounts in the life of Jesus where there's this man who comes to Jesus and he wants his son to be healed, but he's struggling with so much unbelief. And he says this powerful line in Mark 9, 24, really this question, I do believe, translation, I want to believe. I'm kind of stuck in the middle because I, I, there's something about this where I want to believe there's this hope in me and you really are the only hope for that hope. And then on the other side of this, even in my struggle to believe, it's hard for me to fully embrace this. So I want to believe. And then he says this, help me to overcome my unbelief. And so my invitation is maybe just to begin to pray that prayer. If you're in that place, if you're stuck in the middle and a bunch of you are in the house and a bunch of you are podcasting all over the place, who you find yourself there right now, would you just begin to maybe pray the prayer or just invite God into this request? God, I want to believe. Even over the next few weeks, would you help my unbelief? Would you just bow your heads all over the house? Just out of respect for people around you. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace. 
I thank you so much for your goodness. I, Lord, I, I know that this lands and hits all over the place in this room, and so I just pray that you would take, that you would clarify, that you would give wisdom, and that, God, then you would give us courage to know what to do with the wisdom that you give us. And, Lord, I pray specifically. I pray for us as a church, a group of churches, Lord, who constantly, because of what you've done through this little movement, Lord, to just create a safe place for so many to investigate, for so many to listen, for so many to journey, that you would just help us to be faithful to what you have actually presented and who you actually are. Lord, with our 18-year-old students who, Lord, there's so much angst that rises up in me. 25-year-olds that are, that are off kind of on their own really for the first time and have been presented with arguments that are taking the legs out from under their faith needlessly. God, just give us wisdom. Give us as a church a heart for the next generation in everything that we do. And Lord, not even just for the next generation, there's a bunch of people all over the age spectrum this morning that find themselves in one of these places. So just do your thing. And our prayer is, Lord, as the result of these next few weeks, that you would lead many to simply encounter our lead story, and that's Jesus. And so we ask this. And what we believe is his reconciling and redeeming name. Amen.